Welcome to the Zeitgeist 19 curated podcast, exploring the spirit of now through the lens of art and sustainability. Your hosts are Farah Piria and Elizabeth Zhovkova. In this episode, we meet ecological researcher Manili, with who we discuss the destruction of the natural world and dealing with the enormity of the problem. Living in times in which our planet is facing a ghastly future of mass extinction and climate disruption upheavals, Moni shares with us her vision on far-reaching changes for acknowledging and preventing biodiversity loss and handling our ecosystem with care. Hi Wani, we are so glad to have you here with us today. Your work focuses on environmental conservation. You design contracts for natural capital or the so-called payment for ecosystem services. Can you please tell us more about it and why balancing the dynamics of conservation and consumption is so important? Yeah, thank you for your question, Elizabeth. And uh, uh, first, uh, thank you very much. Uh, for inviting me. It's really great to be here with you and Farah today. Um, yeah, so I think before I start uh, talking about payment for ecosystem services, I love your question on thinking about balancing the dynamics of environmental conservation and consumption. So I want to talk a little bit on this uh, concept first. So I'm thinking just use climate change as an example, uh, you know, which is the biggest environmental crisis that uh, humankind faced right now. So for example, a quarter of the greenhouse gas emission uh, worldwide just come from land uses changes. So what is land use change? So we're thinking about causes like deforestation or agricultural expansion. So, you know, deforestation is happening at an extremely alarming rate in um, countries, especially in developing countries where there is a lot of tropical forest. But really what is happening is that the land it has competing use, one for agriculture and another is I'm thinking about how not to expand them for agricultural use, but preserve them as forests. So like the countries we can think a lot about are maybe Indonesia and Brazil, which are experiencing very high deforestation risk right now. And I think talking about conservation and consumption, the most important thing is that we can't see this problem of deforestation purely as a problem of trees being cut down. We have to be thinking about who are the people who are the community that's living behind um, these trees, who are living among these trees. So really these are small, a lot of them are the smallholder farmers who are using the land so that they can um, get daily income to support their family. And so they really need to continue to use the land for agricultural purposes or to be hired for informal um, you know, farm labor so that they can continue to sustain their basic livelihood. So we can't just say, okay, let's completely conserve the forest and not give people the chance to sustain their livelihood. Instead, we need to think about this um, balance in dynamics between having people live their life in, uh, in a sustainable way and as well as thinking about environmental sustainability uh, at the same time. Um, so I guess in the end, all like I believe is that, you know, environmental sustainability 
in the end, it's just a problem of human society's sustainability. So we have to think about consuming, as in using the land, in conjuncture with thinking about conserving the land and conserving our um, natural resources. Um, yeah, just so that we need to conserve the land in a way so that we don't reach to this critical precipice of climate crisis where there's going to be no point of return. But we should think about how to use our land sustainably. Um, and I think I just maybe only answered one part of your question. Uh, now I want to maybe quickly tell you a little bit about what is payment for ecosystem uh, services. So basically the idea of payment for ecosystem services is to recognize that there are people who own these natural resources and the natural resource are bringing us tons of values. So this could be ecosystem services, including clean water, clean air, or better soil quality, et cetera. Um, and you know, carbon sequestration is maybe one of the biggest ecosystem services that forests are delivering to us. Um, so we as society are benefiting from these natural resources. So to recognizing our economic system, someone needs to pay for them so that the people who are living among these natural resources are getting compensated for these valuable things we have. So maybe just to put this idea of uh, payment for ecosystem services in a more concrete uh, sense. Uh, so the biggest example I love to talk about is thinking about the government of Costa Rica, which had the first uh, PES program kind of worldwide. So currently what they do is that they actually pay landowners about $60 per hectare uh, a forest per year in exchange for them not to deforest. So, and many similar programs are run by the UN as well as by many other national governments. So I think here the governments are taking great first step to conserve our um, natural resources. Uh, and what my personal uh, research, what I work on is to think about, so PES, this is just a contract between a government and a and an individual. So basically, I want to think about it. Is it possible to design these contracts in a smart and efficient way so we can improve the uh, environmental uh, outcome as well as minimizing the program uh, kind of cost and uh, taking care of the benefit for the landowner all at the same time? So can we improve the outcome of these programs um, globally for every single person? Thank you, Vanyi. We often overlook biodiversity conversation and forget its significance for economic development and poverty reduction. What can we do to protect biodiversity? According to you, what are the meaningful and most urgent human interventions? These problems are completely intersectional and we can't just have, you know, maybe ecologists who study the species to think about, okay, what to do best for the species. We need to have ecologists, economists, local communities and policymakers come together and work on problems that take care of every single stakeholder's um, welfare and being into uh, the problem. So I think it may be one of the most uh, urgent thing or the thing that we are uh, lacking the most in the biodiversity space is that we simply just need a lot more policy and regulation to account for biodiversity. Because if we remember how uh, we as an international 
community has handled the carbon crisis, you know, it, it was really great because UN and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in the 1970s start talking, urges, you know, the importance of climate change. And then slowly from there, the information trickled down to the national systems. They're starting to be good accounting uh, systems for uh, carbon emission. And then there's also good policy uh, maybe not at the international level yet, but many small, uh, many developed countries have already put uh, carbon regulation uh, and some kind of carbon taxes or cap and trade system into the uh, place. But right now, we simply do not have that um, in biodiversity. Uh, however, I think that I'm, I'm really hopeful in this space because if we think about which year we're living right now, so we're, we, we live in 2020. So we are currently actually in the last year of the UN decade for biodiversity. So the UN decade for biodiversity is uh, rounds from uh, 2011 to 2020. So the goal was for the uh, nations to meet their HE target, which is uh, having more countries to commit to their biodiversity targets. So actually, um, just last month, we we're supposed to have the UN Convention on Biodiversity, but of course, it's unfortunately being delayed uh, due to COVID. But I know that there is a lot of advocacy work that's happening on the international stage. And for example, we're very excited that the UK government is leading um, uh, is leading a report on the economics of biodiversity, so they, which is led by Professor um, Sir Patadaskupta. So there they will be writing a lot on how do we integrate biodiversity assessment into our uh, public and private sector so that the economic growth can, be, uh, can include biodiversity and as well as thinking about the equity problems behind on thinking which communities are being harmed uh, or which communities are more vulnerable if we develop policy um, in this space. Um, and maybe just to, to expand a little bit more and thinking about which, like, what are some good examples that has happened in the past in the smaller scale. So one example I like to think about is um, protecting our fishery. So um, our, the, the, our human population has been consuming fish at a crazy rate in the last many years, uh, in, in the last few decades. But fishery design has been quite successful in many places, given that we have overfishing that's happening. So a simple solution, like if we just prohibit some fish activity happen in certain locations in uh, between our ocean borders, then we can actually allow the fish population to regenerate at a sustainable rate so that human community, the fishery, uh, the fishermen, um, the fish, uh, the fishery communities can continue to harvest the fish, but without letting them to deplete. Because again, we don't want to let these biodiversity, these species to go to a place where there can be no point of return then we know none of the, uh, you know, the natural species as well as a human can sustain at, the, uh, at a good rate if we don't take actions right now. So I think there's a lot we can do. Um, I'm hopeful that once more advocacy work are being done, public sector and private sector will catch up. And then there we can put uh, important policies 
uh, in space, just like the ones we have done for fishery design. Um, but maybe what I hope won't be overlooked is that we have to not only think about the well-being of our generation, but also thinking about the generation of the future, um, thinking about the well-being of the future generations. So this is something the economists call the intergenerational well-being. So I just hope that when we are accounting for these biodiversity and environmental uh, policies, we're not thinking about maximizing our own utility, but as well as thinking about our children and the children of the children. With that being said, I would like to continue the conversation with the thought of the Nobel Laureate for Sustainable Development, Peace and Democracy, Wangari Maathai. When we plant trees, we plant the seeds of peace and seeds of hope. You led the research on designing incentive payments for afforestation in developing countries as part of your journey in Uganda. Can you tell us more about it, its mark and its recent complications related to the current global situation? Um, yeah, thank you. So I'm really passionate about this uh, project and so I'd love to tell you a bit more about this. And so, but maybe just thinking a little bit, uh, I'd love to tell uh, our listeners a little bit about the context among uh, relate to afforestation as well as reforestation effort. Um, so one of the IPA, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report said that by 2030, our Earth needs to generate another 1 billion hectare of trees. But that is an extremely ambitious target because the size of that is basically the size of the US. And what's, uh, as the previous questions we just talked about, it's really important to not just thinking about how to grow trees, but rather we have to think about what are we growing and who are growing and how are they growing these trees? Because again, it's going to be human societies who live closely with these trees. Um, so if we're, gonna, if we're going to ask people to take on afforestation and reforestation efforts, it's extremely that we're thinking about their benefit and potentially compensate them and incentivize them to do this effort instead of just taking on a command and control approach and ask people to do that without thinking about their well-being in any way. So in the context of East Africa, a lot of these, again, are the smallholder farmers that uh, are doing subsistence farming and they really need their uh, land to supply them for daily agricultural income. But the interesting thing is that uh, having interviewed the farmers there, they actually enjoy having trees in their land. The farmers who, who already have trees on their land are not planning to deforest them because they understand that having indigenous trees on their land is actually really helpful for their, um, for, uh, for their well-being. And so some of the benefit of these trees we're thinking about are um, the trees are a great soil, soil fertilizer and as well, it provides the farm really good water quality. So in the long term, having trees on farm is, um, is, is something that can improve their agricultural yield over time. So this is a great news. And so you, we might be wondering, okay, so why are not all farmers just suddenly growing more trees among their crops? So the reason is because um, you know, trees are a very big investment. Very often they don't have the upfront cash 
to pay for these tree seedlings. And also another thing is that these trees take very, very long to mature. We're thinking about the time scale of 10 to 15, even 20 years, and it's a very risky process. So without good training, without good uh, taking care of, they can't, uh, not all trees will succeed and start to deliver these benefits. So now what we see is that there is this opportunity basically to compensate farmer and encourage them to grow more trees uh, so that we can help them improve their livelihood because that's something they want. And then at the same time, from the perspective of maybe government or NGO or companies who want to fulfill their carbon target, they can also be getting uh, carbon credits for uh, paying for such efforts. So this is, uh, so paying farmers to grow trees is really a potential opportunity that is great for carbon benefit, biodiversity benefit, as well as thinking about the UN sustainability, uh, sustainable development goals of improving people's livelihood. Um, yeah, so coming back to, um, Coming back to the case of Uganda, so it's really important for us to think about really when we ask people to grow trees, what trees are we growing? So often, for example, like if it's timber trees, very often what happens is that you ask farmers to grow some exotic species like eucalyptus, but actually uh, such species, if uh, if you go to Uganda, you see that there are some plots of eucalyptus, but they're completely monoculture, as in the land it does not look consistent with the rest of the Uganda's tropical richness landscape in any way. The land honestly looks really dead. There's no biodiversity that comes with it at all. And people usually just grow it, try to cut it all at once so that they can get timber payment. That's it. It's there, this is not actually a good solution for both thinking about environmental outcome as well as farmers' um, well-being in the long term because it's really a short-term solution. So we need, uh, so this is again, thinking about looking at problems jointly, we need to have the, um, we need to have uh, agroforestry experts who understand a lot about the relationship between tree and land, working with the local stakeholders and working with uh, maybe people uh, more in the space of economics and thinking about incentives so that we can think about how do we structure this, um, uh, how can we structure these payments to improve the long-term outcome. And so this is kind of the goal of my project. So I'm currently uh, collaborating with a couple of NGOs. One is called the World Agroforestry Center. Another is One Acre Fund. Both are amazing local international NGOs who have strong local presence in East Africa and working with millions of smallholder farmers in this space. And um, um, I'm really excited to uh, continue to work with them. But of course, Elizabeth, as you just asked, um, a lot of this work needs to happen in the field, in, um, on the ground, but because of COVID, a lot of things are being delayed because a lot of field travel cannot happen. Um, and the local NGOs interaction with farmers have also been um, limited due to the lockdown policies that was happening. Um, but I'm really hopeful, hopefully the COVID situation will uh, alleviate um, very soon given that we have a vaccine 
potentially could work. And hopefully, I just hope that developing countries will be having access to these vaccines as fast as the developed country. I hope the economic factor does not play a role here. Um, and in the end, you know, I think COVID is a one big hiccup in what's happening with our world. But once this is over, we need to come back and think about our environmental degradation because there it's a bigger problem that we cannot, um, we cannot really ignore. And we just need more people to be working on this. And we can't forget of, like, how much work there needs to be done in order to uh, conserve our, our biodiversity and uh, regrow our forest. Speaking of afforestation, Vani, and this is my last question for you. How can we engage local communities to participate in afforestation and other regenerative activities? Uh, I love thinking about local communities. Uh, I think it really would depend on um, which local communities that we're talking about, because I know that we, the listeners come from a very international background for this uh, podcast. So I think you know, if we live, it, for me personally, my local community, I live in Boston, uh, which is uh, in the U.S., which is a developed country that, uh, and just, which in general have good environmental policy at a city level. And I know that after this federal administration, uh, I am confident that the U.S. will have good environmental policy at the national scale as well, because I know that the next president-elect is um, uh, is planning to uh, rejoin the Paris com uh, Agreement, uh, which is very exciting for everyone. I think that's long overdue. So uh, as private citizens in local communities, I love to think about how we can just um, instead of thinking specifically on um, uh, afforestation or regenerative activities, I love for us to just all think about how do we minimize our carbon footprint as well as biodiversity footprint. So when we're living, there is, it's important uh, when we go about our daily life just to look at um, the companies that are supplying our daily demand to uh, to research on them and think about whether they have responsible sourcing channels because a lot of these things we buy every day we use every day we're not thinking about them but they all have um connections very long supply chains into developing countries and with the smallholder farmers we've been thinking about so how are these products impacting their livelihood and how are our products impacting the carbon emission of this world so i think it's important to research on their sustainability practices about the companies we interact with daily so just a concrete example of thinking about maybe palm oil so palm oil is one of the biggest driver for deforestation in, uh, especially in Southeast uh, Asia, like country, uh, countries like Indonesia. So, but palm oil is actually quite ubiquitous in every product we use daily. So it is in our makeup, it's in our soap, it's in our cookies. If we, we go to any grocery store, you will find palm oil in you know 80% of the goods there. But actually uh, palm oil, because of this, crazy demand of palm oil being the most versatile oil there is. So a lot of farmers have deforested illegally, burnt down the existing tropical forest so that they can expand and uh, um, 
grow uh, palm, uh, grow these oil palm trees so that they can get this income. Um, so of course, it's not really. Uh, it, it's really important for us as consumers to think about these small choices we're making. So even though these small choices have marginal impacts, but it will be great if we have the capacity and the availability to choose, we should be thinking about how to be a responsible consumer and thinking about, and there are companies that are becoming very sustainable. There are companies who are actively working with a smallholder farmer thinking about how to improve their livelihood so that this will decrease the pressure for them to deforest illegally and grow more uh, oil palm. Because in the end, they're only doing that because they don't have, uh, their means are not meeting their ends. So uh, yeah, so I guess just coming back to the point is that it will be great for us all to take a look at the label of the products we're buying and to try to live our life responsibly so that we can uh, improve our carbon footprint as well as biodiversity uh, footprint. Thank you, Wani, for this insightful conversation. And uh, we hope that we will all handle our ecosystem with more care. It's my honor to be here with you guys today.